1: We live
2: in a time and a culture that's very paradoxical. Like I I use the phrase sexually bipolar to mean that sex is everywhere. It's in the media, advertising, pop songs, movies. You can't get away from, and often like very graphic depictions of sex. And yet at the same time, there's these massive cultural messages about not having sex, not enjoying sex, not showing it in so many ways. And so it's very bipolar. And I think that most people have this struggle about how to then process what like, where does sex live in my life and then you know add on to that to what i feel is that you know, we're all natural born lovers, like that idea of born to run is that we all have this natural sexual energy, it's our birthright, it's part of who we are, it's how we recreate, procreate in the world, it's creative energy, we all have it, not just some people have it, and some people don't, and some people are born good lovers, and some people aren't, no, we're all born amazing lovers, and then what happens is that conditioning, so personally, like the only people I've met in my vast sexual journey is that who've overcome that stuff are people who consciously put in the effort, you know, the people who've really worked at their relationships and tried to look at what kind of barriers and inhibitions they have and then overcome them, right? By working at them, like say they had lots of failed relationships and it was just becoming so painful for them that they finally said, okay, whatever it's going to take, I need to figure this out. And so they went into therapy, they read lots of books, they, you know, put a big amount of effort into trying to rectify or heal or change that part of their lives. And so I don't think that anyone can grow up in on our planet right now or over the last however many centuries and not be fucked up around sex. It doesn't mean like massively. No, it doesn't mean massively traumatized. It doesn't mean that you had to have been abused or raped or it just means that there's so many conflicting ideas so many negative ideas that unless you consciously confront them you will be operating at a deficiency Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
3: Yeah. So, you know, I was thinking about how I would introduce you and I was thinking about our email exchange when we were connected and I thought, okay, this is a woman who just surfed a 200 yard wave and knows how to have one hour (laughs) orgasms. I'm like, well, that's how I'll introduce her. So on that note, uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, uh, your journey, your story, and how that has led you to where you're at and what you're up to in the world today?
2: Well, my journey has been very organic where I feel like I have just spent the last 20 something, 25 years or so trying to pick out the next right step in my life. So what do I want to learn about? What do I think will help me to grow as a person? And then either moving to a destination that would work with that or facilitate that or studying something that would facilitate that. And so it's always been about how do we change and how do we grow? Like what are things that I can can do that really helped me to become the best and most like truly expressed version of who I am so along the way I've studied everything from nutrition and psychology meditation um, things that I felt would help change my state of consciousness and alter it so I could experience like a higher level of awareness and feel more connected to myself to the world at large and things like sex and surfing were part of that journey where, you know, from an early age, my own sexual experiences showed me that I, I would reach this transcendent state, like this very high, spiritual, aware, connected, euphoric state of being. And that was always like the blueprint for my sexuality was that that's what sex could do for me. It could change me as a person, it could elevate me, it could deepen my relationship. And so from a very young age, early, early sexual experiences, that's how what I understood sex to be. And then this parallel with surfing, you know, is this idea that that you align yourself with this power, this force of the universe, which I also would consider sexual energy to be. And then you allow it to enter you. You allow, you know, you merge with it so that it takes you on this journey. And at the end of it, it's like, kind of like blocking out, you know, the reason why I think people in in large part use, say, drugs and alcohol is to shut off their mind, right? It's to shut off that chatter mind that's so incessantly at you all the time. And I stopped using drugs and alcohol about 20 something years ago. And instead, have sought out different experiences that would do that for me, right? That would take me out of my head and further into this more, you know, Uncensored, very authentic, very free version of myself. And so, you know, sex and surfing are two really good examples of being able to do that at a really high level.
3: Mm, okay. So, a ton of stuff here. Um, you know, the thing that really fascinates me is, is this idea of sort of the next right step. Uh, and I want to go back to the very beginning of this. You know, I feel like so many adults lose their way and Eventually, we just find ourselves going through the motions and whatever the next right step is, is just I mean, we're not even aware that such a concept exists at a certain point. And so I'm really curious how we get back in touch with that and then figure out our next right step.
2: Right. And that's a great question. And for me, it was quite puzzling initially, because from the age of 16, I had my whole life mapped out in front of me until about age 45, like where I would do degrees, what kind of education I would get, where I would be living, like all these things I had really planned out. And when I realized that that somehow wasn't going to work for me, I was really disoriented because I'd held on to that path as an anchor for myself. And I felt quite disoriented initially where I really just had to feel like, like what's literally that sort of be here now idea, like what's in front of me right now that seems like I'm feeling drawn towards or what shows up with me right now. Like I was in, okay, I was in, I'll give you an example on kind of a microcosmic level, but I was in my, uh, I'm currently in port uh, living on a, a surfing yacht in the middle of the Indian Ocean and in off coast of Indonesia. And I was working on my computer. There was a bunch of people in my hotel room socializing, and I was in the corner doing some work. And my computer fell onto the ground as I got up to, someone spilt a drink in the room, so I got up to help them. And I've never, in the whole three or four years of having this laptop, I've never dropped it, you know, ever. So I drop it on the ground. It starts making this beeping sound. It's a Mac, and so it's not working. Something's wrong with the hard drive. And so this woman offers to uh, take me on her motorcycle on a Sunday afternoon, which (laughs) the Mac store is open on a Sunday afternoon um, in the middle of Sumatra. And we go to take my computer in, and it's apparently it's fine. Like they all he had to do was do a hard reset with it, and it was totally fine. But then we ended up taking this drive on the motorcycle, like throughout the the city, and she showed me all these new places that I'd never seen before. And we ended up on the beach eating a bunch of coconuts together and then having this really good girl talk and talking about like sex and relationships and stuff. And it was sort of like Life just presented, you know, and afterwards I thought, well, it's a good thing she spilled her drink and my computer fell down or we would have and like all these things came out of that experience in that afternoon that was just following the next right thing right like the next right thing was it it was almost more maybe a sense of urgency like okay I had to take my computer in but it was to me this beautiful example of life kind of lining things up for you in your favor and if you don't have that attachment like I didn't get angry or upset about the computer I mean I was worried but I just thought okay like there's always a way to fix things you know like worst case scenario I buy a new computer. I think it's fairly recently backed out, but it unfolded into this beautiful adventure, you know? And like, I looked back on it and went like life orchestrated that. Cause I needed that moment to get out. And I had all these experiences come into my Vista that did not, that I wouldn't have shot. Like I wouldn't have sought out in that way if I didn't just kind of follow the clues. Does mm. that make sense?
3: That makes complete sense. To me, as I'm listening to you describe that, I think of it as adjusting to what the wave is doing as you're going from one section to another.
2: Beautiful. Yeah, really good analogy. And then and trying not to be attached to it, right? Like, not, you know, if I'd gotten really angry and frustrated about maybe my computer falling, I probably would have turned off this woman and she probably wouldn't have offered to take me on this adventure. Do you know what I mean? She might have not even offered to take me to the Mac store at all. Mm -hmm. But instead, the energy was just mellow and calm and relaxed. And so she wanted to help and and then you know it led into something else. But it's sort of that acceptance and trust that made me. Maybe the universe is going to help direct you in a way if you're open enough to hear those clues, right? And if you don't, aren't so rigidly attached to a certain way of being or a certain outcome or a direction that you can hear them. Hmm.
3: So let me ask you this: uh, How do you take something like that? How do we how do we cultivate this form of, of non attachment uh, for experiences that are actually traumatic and painful?
2: That's a really good question. I mean, I my belief is that the only way out is through. And so if something comes and that's Robert Browning, that's a quote from Robert Mm -hmm. Browning, but that if something happens in my life, that's painful, like a loss of some kind, or I feel like I made a quote unquote mistake. And now I have to, you know, something's happening because of that. You know, my philosophy is to feel the sadness, the pain, the frustration as as deeply as possible so that I can get through it faster, because I know that on the other side of that lies joy, lies insight. And for me, it's also personal responsibility. It's like, how did I bring this into my awareness? How did I attract this into my space? Because I believe that everything happens to us for that reason, because on some level we've drawn it to us, whether it's unconscious or conscious. And so I do my best to feel the feelings as deeply and thoroughly as possible and to really be like, take an honest inventory of how did I contribute to this? Because then I can learn the lesson and up level myself. And so I can attract something better and more powerful into
3: my life after that. Mm, I love that. So, you know, one of the things I, I want to go back to is this idea that you've given up alcohol and drugs for, for 20 years. And I'm, you know, one, I'm really curious uh, how that has affected your life in general. And, you know, what can we as, as listeners take away from that as I sit here with a, a glass of wine on my desk thinking, <laughs> wow, maybe I should not have it here.
2: Well, you know that just felt right for me like from you know my teenagehood when i first started experimenting with drugs and alcohol like i always knew i was looking for this altered state of awareness like i might take some kind of a drug and then sit in my room and paint or write like i was looking at how i could harness that portal that opened within me into something creative into something useful so it wasn't just this pure escapism for me I guess you know I'm sure that was part of it but I was also looking at harnessing that energy and um So, uh, and then I started looking at different healing modalities, like philosophy, psychology, meditation. And once I found meditation, I found that I had this instant tool to change my state of awareness. And so I've had a daily meditation practice for the last 21 years. And I would say that that's my way of diffusing stress and changing my state of awareness, getting in touch with my higher self, that I don't need drug and alcohol to do that. And because it's, it's inside of myself, I feel, personally, like that's a superior tool for me, right? Because it's on demand, it's always there and I'm using my own fuel to get to those places and not using other substances. And I guess personally, like, you know, when I read about tribes that would say, use uh, a particular drug in a ceremony, like a vision quest or something like that, like to me, that's a more appropriate use of Psychedelics or drugs is like as this, you know, aid rather than as a daily uh, intake, right? But mm. that's that's my perspective, and I totally respect everybody else's way of doing things. Like I know people. There's a lot of Australians who come out on like <laughs> in this area. A lot of Australian surfers, you know, and they just they drink so much beer like constantly it's just their way of life and right, they're still very coherent intelligent people right like despite whatever like all these other things they're doing and so I don't judge you know Mm -hmm. I just want to make that clear like anybody else's choices it's just for me that was my own process of getting to those places and honestly because of the large amount of personal work that I've done over the years like I'm a very uninhibited person and so I'm the wildest craziest person on the dance floor when i'm the sober one in the room like sometimes i go to parties and if it's early in the night and no one's like no one's uninhibited yet because they're not drunk enough yet i leave for a few hours and then i come back to the party Uh at midnight or one o'clock when they're all drunk enough to finally be dancing and having fun so i just adapt my life accordingly (laughs) to whatever i have to but um yeah that's just not a part of my reality anymore
3: so a couple of things that I, I want to ask you about. One is the daily meditation practice and uh, how we incorporate one into our lives. And, and you, you know, you mentioned the sort of state of awareness that comes from it, because like I always wonder, you know, I mean, I started incorporating a meditation practice and I'm like, OK, why am I still thinking about the things that I don't want to think about? Like, is this ever going to slow down? Is the chatter just going to stop at some point? Um, so I'm really curious to hear you know your thoughts on all of that and, and your perspective on that. Uh, and then, you know, the other question I have actually, and this is of tremendous interest to me is how we become uninhibited without alcohol or drugs and how we can do work on ourselves that leads us there.
2: Right. Okay. So the first question is, oh, sorry. Can you repeat the first, like just summarize the first question? Yeah. I
3: mean, I really, I just want to get a sense for what your daily practice of meditation looks like, uh, only because, you know, I still feel like even when I do it, I'm like, wow, there's still all this mental chatter. I thought it's just going to shut off.
2: Right. Okay. So I use a mantra, like, and so when I meditate, I do, I chant for about 10 or 15 minutes, and then I'll have about five to 10 minutes of silence where I listen. And so on my spiritual path, we use this phrase, go inside and do something so that meditation isn't just passive, it's more, um, it's more active. And so the chanting is to give the mind, give the dog a bone, really. Mm. It's like to give the mind, it's constantly chewing over things, something else to do. And then also the of a mantra is that it's this word or sound that's imbued with a powerful vibration, like most people have heard of the word Om. Mm -hmm. And I chant the word Hu, which is H-U, it's actually an ancient name for God, and it shows up in different writings and cultures all over the world. Like Rumi writes about this word Hu as this word of God in a lot of his poetry and books. And it shows up in Celtic cultures and African cultures as this ancient sound and name. And so, I believe in the power of using those words to elevate the state of culture. Consciousness, and then after I've distracted and settled the mind a little bit, and you know, calmed my body down, then I'll listen. You know, if I have a question about something, I'll ask that question, or I create little exercises in my brain. So we also have this idea, like as above, so below, that you know, what you uh, create or visualize in your head first, it appears there, and then you can bring it down into the physical plane. And so I might, let's say, that I want to let's say I'm having a a struggle with something and I want to get rid of this energy or this idea. It's like, I might imagine that I'm sitting next to a river and I write these things down on a piece of paper and I crumple them up and I throw them into the river, the things that I want to get rid of. And then I watch as the river just, you know, takes them downstream and they dissolve into the river. So it's this idea of actively, um, what I would call a spiritual exercise. Like you do something inwardly to help your outer situation, so that's my whole practice is that there's an element of chanting and then an element of actual activity that I do something to make it useful for myself. And in so doing, you know, by forcing myself to be more creative, I don't find that I get bored or that I, um, like as you know, the, the restlessness or the when people think that they're doing meditation wrong. It, there's no way to do it wrong, you know. It's like your mind will always. I mean, my mind will still throw things into there, but I just tried it. That's the beautiful thing about using a mantra is that it will override those things, you know, and shift your awareness. Mm-hmm. So before I answer your next question, do you have any questions about that?
3: No, I mean that that you know again, you know, I always jokingly say half half the reason I ask these questions is their personal demons that I'm battling, and I was very curious about right. that
2: one. Yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of becoming more uninhibited, I think it's really, you know, I've been committed to this path of personal growth for like 25 plus years. And as even as a teenager, where I have tried to consciously battle my own demons, and I call it demon hunting, where I try to find the things that seem like they're blocks or insecurities or inhibitions in myself and consciously take them on and conquer them. And so, because I've had that philosophy, I feel like, you know, I have moved through a lot of stuff in myself and cleared out of a lot of debris or effluvia or past trauma or whatever it is that might get in the way of becoming that free expression. And, you know, I read the book, uh, born to run last year. Have you read that book?
3: No, I haven't.
2: Oh, it's a phenomenal book. It's one of the best books I've read in decades. Like Chris McDougall wrote this book. And honestly, that whole barefoot running, idea, a lot of it sort of he encapsulates it's in there. And so he talks about this concept that, well, there's this tribe in Mexico, I think they're called the Tehumara, and they were forced down into these canyons centuries ago when the Spanish conquistadors came to Mexico and they kind of ran and they couldn't be pursued down in these canyons. And they have these crazy like steep cliffs and you know terrain and valleys and crazy terrain uh, environment there. And just for fun, these people will run a hundred miles. They'll strap a cut out piece of car rubber tire under their feet and just run a hundred miles for fun. So this guy heard about this because he'd had running injuries and was researching the whole idea of running and running shoes. And then he got he found these like the world's greatest sort of ultra marathoners, like hundred mile runners, and brought them down to Mexico to race this tribe. And of course, the tribe wins. But anyway, um what he's saying is that what's created like pretty much all of the injuries that runners get isn't from running. It's from wearing running shoes. So the, what's actually inhibiting our true potential is putting on these running shoes. If we run barefoot or with like a tiny little bit of support, we're actually in much better condition. And there's never, ever been a study to suggest that running shoes actually help you in any way. (laughs) So, um, that whole idea I apply to us and sexuality in, in a big way that there's these, we have this natural innate sexual expression or this natural innate authentic expression of who we are and it's these cultural blocks and conditioning that are like the running shoes that are blocking that pure expression and they injure us and then we have to not only deal with the injury uh, but you know what I mean? Like we have to then deal with like removing the running shoes and stuff and so there's all this work to be done mm-hmm. and I feel like really that's why why we're here on this planet is to become these more pure vessels of clear expression of who we are. And so to me, you know, it's always about looking for that next level, right? The next right thing is also the next level of growth. There's always another level of growth to go. I don't believe that enlightenment is a static concept. It's Mm. actually a temporary place. We get to a plateau and we've achieved something and then there's always another level to go.
3: Wow. Okay so quite a few more questions from this one how do we remove the running shoes and how do we keep removing the running shoes to you know keep getting to that more authentic expression of who we are and as i was hearing you describe this process uh, of you know releasing inhibition Even though I've never been, I can't help but think of stories I hear uh, from friends who go to Burning Man and they come back saying, you know, all these things about how life changing it is and how the real world isn't the real world. And they're in this place that's uninhibited. And I'm wondering, you know, how do you bring that sort of authentic freedom of expression into your daily life without being in such an altered environment? Does that make any sense at all?
2: Well, it's a good question, and it reminds me of something I saw recently about Burning Man, which is kind of like everybody, I haven't been to Burning Man, and I'm not sure if I will ever go, and I appreciate that it's very powerful for many people, but it's kind of like taking to me like a drug. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Ram Das said that the you can drugs can help you to see the mountain, but they can't help you to climb it. And so you can have these temporary windows that give you insight into something about what's possible. But then the challenge is how do you bring that back into your day to day life and live that? And so um I I guess I feel like it's this constant commitment to growth and to doing that work. You know, I've spent a lot of time off the grid in my adulthood. And even, I guess, as a child, we had like a summer cabin that we'd go to all the time and weekend cabin It was not entirely off the grid, but pretty off the grid. Like we didn't have TV there or it wasn't the age of video games. And so we were just out in the forest playing all the time. And so I feel like a lot of that has really helped to shape me is that when we get out of urban environments, out of civilization, which I think in large part is what, you know, Burning Man is all about too, is that another more you know, that more pure expression of who we are as humans comes to light. We're not being bombarded with ele- electromagnetic radiation. We're not being bombarded with these ideas of how we're supposed to look, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to be. And these free expressions come out. So I've been attracted to locales like that or throughout the planet where there's like this off the grid kind of self exiled intellectual slash expat communities going on of people who've decided to remove themselves out of that big churning kind of social conditioning urban culture into something else. And I find that in those destinations or in those situations, it's much easier to connect internally and just be yourself, right? People aren't judging you for what you're wearing, the amount of makeup you have, how good you look, you know, what you do for a living. They're just trying to find the most pure essence of you and connect to that. And so I feel personally like a lot of those stretches of time that I've spent in environments like that have been very formative for me to feel more connected and more fearless and I guess but I've also had really powerful experiences in urban environments like my sexual experiences actually have been extremely powerful in helping to shift conditioning and inhibitions where I look at sex as being this arena where we can consciously confront taboos even you know like minor sex acts like anal sex can be this taboo breaking acts that once you go through them and look at them in a conscious way and experience them in a very conscious way, they're liberating, right? Like any place that you're trying to break free of taboo, um, is liberating. And so once you have those experiences, you carry that out with you, you own them, you earned them. You know, I like to say that we earn experiences, we earn our growth. And then you wear that, you become quite easily and naturally a different person where you just are more of yourself. You know, like I'm at a place where I just don't really give a shit what anybody thinks about me. You know, like I say what I think, I do what I want. I'm my own boss. I have been my own boss for over 20 years. And that's how I live my life. But that's been through consciously, I guess, taking on experiences where I'm challenging myself, right? And I have to rise above. So I put out a lot of info there, but that's
3: my take on it. Yeah, no, I, I there's so much there. It almost I, I want to like I know I'm just going to go back to that and rewind it a dozen times just to listen to it. And you know, it, it makes me think of, of so many things. You know, f- first that I'm like, wow, I should uh, make a drive over to Sedona in a few weeks. And also, just time in the yeah. water too when I surf is is similar to what you're describing because it is that escape uh, to some degree that you know allows you to connect with something that is not uh, part of the typical environment. And then, you know, the other thing you said that I think is really fascinating uh, and it's something I see over and over again is that when we have these powerful experiences, they give us a window of temporary insight and yet to bring it back to our daily lives, we have to make a commitment. And I see that where I see it the most actually is with people who come to these events, uh, people who come to conferences or people who, who I've seen even come to our own events. And I've experienced it myself. You go into this environment that is incredibly transformative and you are at the end of it with this amazing high and most people don't realize that that doesn't last like you have to basically commit to showing up the way you did there every single day
2: Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the key in in the personal growth world is that you can go to have these peak experiences, right, that are so amazing. And I think what what in a way really supports those experiences is having this community around you that's dedicated on the same intense level that you are to this kind of growth and development, Mm -hmm. right? And then when we go out into the world, we don't have that support anymore. We're on our own. Or maybe we have a few people in our lives, ideally, you know, a lot of people that support that and we can sustain that growth and development. But I think a big part of it comes down to community mm-hmm. and that is is replicating that level of um, collective experience, which is really our heritage as humans, right? Like when we lived in larger extended families and larger tribes, we always had that there and we just, we really don't have that now unless we've been very deliberate about creating it and cultivating it, cultivating that kind of community in our lives, mm-hmm. and then the other element, so that I think is is discipline. Like you said, is like having the practices that you've committed to carry out daily practices. And to, honestly, even though I've been meditating daily for over twenty years, it's like I still have to r- like rearrange that practice so that it's fresh mm-hmm. and it's still because f- otherwise my mind will get bored of it and it won't. It'll it'll be like sustaining, but it won't necessarily be growing me, right? And so there's this constant. Challenge to keep challenging myself, and even that in itself is work, right? Like, that in itself is a discipline to not just be lazy and just call it in, right? Mm-hmm. To dial it in. I mean, sometimes you can dial it in, and it's perfectly fine to dial it in when you have to dial it in and choose those times when you definitely up level it. But I think, yeah, personal discipline and practices and community to me are the two big pieces to sustaining that kind of those highs and those experiences.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit and and let's get into the meat of why I wanted to have you here, uh, which is really to talk about sex, sexuality, relationships, you know, the dynamic between men and women, uh, you know, something that I've had at a personal interest in for numerous reasons. You know, the thing that I guess really where I want to start is sort of the cultural conversation around sex and why it's such a complicated one and, and what misperceptions we get from the media and Hollywood and, you know, I mean, like I grew up in a culture ironically that wrote a manual on the damn act of sex. And then I'm told, you know, this is not a good idea before you get married. Uh, right. So, you know, I want, I want to hear your perspective on all of that before we get into the gist of, of the rest of it.
2: Well, I mean, we live in a time and a culture that's very paradoxical. Like, I I use the phrase sexually bipolar to mean that sex is everywhere. It's in the media, advertising, pop songs, movies. You can't get away from, and often, like, very graphic depictions of sex. And yet, at the same time, there's these massive cultural messages about not having sex, not enjoying sex, not showing it in so many ways. And so it's very bipolar. And I think that most people have this struggle about how to then process what like, where does sex live in my life and then you know add on to that to what i feel is that You know, we're all natural born lovers. Like that idea of born to run is that we all have this natural sexual energy. It's our birthright. It's part of who we are. It's how we recreate, procreate in the world. It's creative energy. We all have it. Not just some people have it and some people don't. And some people are born good lovers and some people aren't. No, we're all born amazing lovers. And then what happens is that conditioning. So personally, like the only people... I've met in my vast sexual journey is that who've overcome that stuff are people who consciously put in the effort, you know, the people who've really worked at their relationships and tried to look at what kind of barriers and inhibitions they have and then overcome them right? By working at them, like say they had lots of failed relationships and it was just becoming so painful for them that they finally said, okay, whatever it's going to take, I need to figure this out. And so they went into therapy, they read lots of books, they, you know, put a big amount of effort into trying to rectify or heal or change that part of their lives. And so I don't think that anyone can grow up in on our planet right now or over the last however many centuries and not be fucked up around sex. It doesn't mean like massively. No, it doesn't mean massively traumatized. You know, it doesn't mean that you had to have been abused or raped or it just means that there's so many conflicting ideas, so many negative ideas that unless you consciously confront them, you will be operating at a deficiency, right? Unless you consciously look at your blocks, like where, how am I showing up sexually? Like where, where do I actually want to be? What do I, what do I really believe about sex? Not just what have I internalized about sex? You know, for example, um, women might have this, Intellectual belief that hey, I can be a really liberated woman. I can express myself sexually. Obviously, that's like the modern ideal. And yet, there's this huge taboo, this sort of Madonna whore thing that's like an archetype that's still at play for women. That women can be virgins, and that or they can be sluts. That it gets this really hard happy medium to find women that are it's okay to be sexually voracious, right? Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of room for that in our culture. So, a woman might intellectually believe that you know, she can be that, but she might be carrying this internalized belief that, okay, she's actually secretly scared that if she's too voracious and too expressive, she'll be labeled and judged a slut. Every woman I know has been called a slut at some point in her life, you know, just because she's being sexual, not because she's been like super slutty exactly, Mm -hmm. or whatever that even means, you know, not that I have judgment about that. So it's about trying to look at they could do an inventory about the things that we might be carrying and in- inhabiting. That even though we don't consciously want to be, we are nonetheless, and they are running a part of our show.
4: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
3: All right. So we've looked at it from the female perspective. I want to hear it from the male perspective um, and your thoughts on that. Just being a guy, I, I want to get an understanding of it.
2: Well, I think that, you know, an example, and these are just examples there, you know, there's, there's lots of examples, but, you know, men are conditioned to believe that they're more sexual and less emotional, that they spread the seed and women tend the seed. And I think that's only conditioning. I don't think that's true. I think that men are, you know, just as emotional as women are allowed to be. (laughs) And women are just as sexual as men are allowed to be. But those have been conditions that have been placed on us from a very early age, right? That men are, allowed to go and play the field and have lots of lovers and be more sexually um, expressive that's totally okay and then that they're less emotional that they're more crippled emotionally in some way like you know it's that that's maybe the case because it's been so superimposed on them but it's not the actual truth of who they are
3: Mm. So let me ask you this. I mean, how do we overcome all this conditioning? I mean, you you know, I think it's interesting you mentioned, you know, reading books, going to therapy, you know, asking all these questions. Uh, I mean, how do we overcome the conditioning around sex so that, one, we're having more of it uh, and that our dynamic in our interactions with members of the opposite sex is actually a very, very, like, good one?
2: Well, like I said, it's, I think... A lot of people come to my work because I'm positioned a lot in the holistic community of personal growth. And a lot of people who are on a path of growth, like they're looking at different areas of their lives to see how they can grow and change, like spiritually, physically, health-wise, or diet, exercise, Things like that. And then they come across my work and they're like, oh, sex, you know, like they didn't really think they could apply these same ideas of personal growth and wellness to their sex lives. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my approach is that, yes, like sex is this personal growth tool. Sex is an essential part and glue of any intimate relationship and it ought to be prioritized and focused on far, far more than it really is. And most people like the kind of sex education that we get in schools tends to be, uh, sex will kill you and sex will get you pregnant. Now. Okay. Off you go, go out and have sex. Or some people will, you know, sex, you will go to hell or whatever they get from it. Right. Other stuff. And, um, you know, my view is that our sex and relationships ought to be looked at in the same way that we look at our careers. Mm -hmm. So, You know, we think about going to school, we get educated in a certain subject, maybe we get a job in that area, but even if we do get a job in that area, we still look at how to better ourselves. We take seminars and workshops and classes and additional education, we might mentor under someone, you know, we're always studying like how to improve and be the best we can be. But in our sex and relationships, no one really does that, right? We get that shitty sex education, if you can even call it that, about condom use and terrible carcinogenic birth control, and then we're told go on and have sex. So people are fumbling at best, right? Fumbling and really, really, really lucky if they happen to have modeled maybe a healthy relationship somewhere in their family where they can get a few, glean a little bit of wisdom from. But otherwise to me, It's something that needs to be actively studied and constantly um, studied to, or maybe not studied as the word, but, you know, looked at as an area to improve and to grow and give attention to. Mm -hmm. It's like buying a plant, right? You don't just buy a plant and stick it in the corner of your room and ignore it, right? Right. Like you water it, you give it fertilizer, you make sure it has sunlight, you like check out the health of its leaves. You know, that's how we ought to be looking at our relationships. And so I think first off is just a reframing to understand that our relationships in my view are this incredible power source for us because as much as there's all this taboo around sexuality and sexual energy it's because it's such an enormous source of power like i talk about sexual energy being like nuclear power right if it's used really well it can be an efficient energy source maybe mm-hmm. um uh, and if it's not used well, it becomes this meltdown. It can have all this fallout in somebody's life. And the way I see it show up in people's lives and relationships, you know, if their intimate relationship is doing really well, it elevates all other parts of the person's life. You know, it's like when you feel that feeling of really being in love and it just gives you this buffer towards the entire world, your whole existence. And then if your relationship is in the shit, it sucks every other part of your life into it. you you know, you get depressed, you get exhausted, you can have financial problems. Like all of these things can be this direct result, are a direct result of having a stop, like trouble in, in a relationship. So I think it's, you know, really understanding how important a role it plays in your life and then committing to putting the time and the energy into working on it. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's looking at the blocks that you might have, I have couples set up sex dates in their lives. And so they can, you know, actually carve out dedicated time. Like, you know, we have sex a minimum of three times a week and it'll happen on these times and days. <laughs> so at least that that's set in place, you know, I offer a whole like online sex school where people can study to learn how to get to those next levels and everything from uh, couples. I have a couples course to vaginal Kung Fu, how to strengthen your vagina to have like better orgasm and more orgasms and how to shoot ping pong balls across the room, which, which I assert is a natural life skill that every woman ought to have. So here's, okay, here's a really good example is that, you know, we hear about these legendary vaginas in say Thailand that can shoot, or many, of us have seen them shoot ping pong balls and open beer bottles and smoke cigarettes. And I believe that that should be the base level for all vaginas. Like every vagina should be able to do that. And the fact that vaginas fall out, which a lot of them do, women have massive. Issues of urinary incontinence It's thought that up to 50% of women Have issues of urinary incontinence If you can believe that Because they have weak pelvic floors That's considered more normal In our fucked up sexual climate Than vaginas that shoot ping pong balls wow. Right? If you're actually strengthening your vagina Just like any other muscle That's what it can do Easy peasy, no problemo a party skill or a bedroom trick, like whatever you want to call it, like that's normal. And yet, you know, women having to get surgery because their pelvic floors are so weak that their like, their uteruses are falling out is considered more socially acceptable, right? Than having this really strong killer vagina.
3: Wow. Okay. So ton of stuff here. You know, I, I want to go <laughs> back to something you said at the very beginning about people not having, you know, proper models for healthy relationships. Yeah. And You know, I mean, growing up in the culture that I did, you know, I mean, I have parents who have an arranged marriage and, you know, I look at the dynamic and and as much as I I hate to say it, I'm like, you know, I don't want to end up like that. Uh, and I love my parents. They're wonderful people. And... Yet I look at that and I think that's not how a relationship is supposed to be, because the way I've been culturally brought up uh, in the United States is seeing something very different. So, one, you know, what are characteristics of healthy relationships and what misperceptions are created by the world around us about what's healthy?
2: Well, I think for one, okay, healthy healthy relationship to me like has at its core a strong sexual connection. Like the only thing that separates your intimate relationship from any other relationship you have with any other person on the planet generally is the fact that you're having sex with that person. Right, and so to me, that really is the core, the glue, the the helm of your relationship. And so it's important that that part takes place frequently. It takes place in a manner that's satisfying to both people, and then it feels like it reconnects you. Right, like to me, that's like your power station. You come back, you connect sexually, you refuel each other, and then you go out into the world. And the Taoists, like you, you're referencing India, but in Taoist culture, five thousand years ago as well, when Tantra was you know, operating in India, they looked at sex as medicine. There was this whole I mean movement of sexual energy and rejuvenation and power that was going on there as well. And they have this thing they call the daily sex prayer where the woman ideally and the man have sex in the morning and they have sex in the evening. So they have sex to start the day and they have sex to finish the day and kind of go into the dream state in a more, you know, serene way. And I that I live that philosophy, right? Like or maybe like the sex prayer morning evening being lunchtime and afternoon Mm -hmm. but um, I feel like that's for one, it's that reframing that that's perfectly okay and acceptable and necessary in an intimate relationship. And then I think the other piece that's really important is honesty and communication. Like I think that in some of the, you know, you talk about arranged marriages or marriages that people just stay in because they're in them and they don't want to leave the economic, the social, the, the family kind of support, but they become dead, right? Like if people aren't expressing themselves and being honest, it's like these, all these walls get built up in the relationship, these sins of omission, these outright lies, and it creates a barrier. And so the two people are trying to, or not, you know, connect with this large barrier between them. And so the juiciness really just drops out of the relationship. And so the more that you're raw and naked and honest and vulnerable in the the relationship, the more powerful it is. Um, so those are like a couple things I think that are really important in intimate relationships. And then remind me the second part of your question, please.
3: Um, you know, what 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 myths uh, does sort of our media narrative create around all of this? And this is this is a question out of personal curiosity, because I had a conversation with a friend about how Hollywood creates completely out of whack and inaccurate ideas of what relationships are supposed to be like.
2: Well, here's one that you might find unusual that I believe is that I think what's a myth is this idea that after two years, relationships naturally plummet, that you hit the a stage where apparently the biochemical reactions like change and, you know, you're not so in love anymore and you get into this like harder work area of the relationship. I think that's bullshit. What actually happens after two years is that people start removing their conscious attention away from the relationship, meaning that in the first, you know, initial courtship and getting to know each other, you put your best foot forward. You try to be very conscious and that's not a bad thing. Like what's wrong with being very conscious and deliberate about all your actions? That's a disciplined way of living. Mm-hmm. But what happens usually is that by the time people get committed and they kind of get locked in, they're like, oh, you know, I don't have to put as much attention on my relationship anymore. I'll put more attention now, again, on my work or my friendships or whatever else is going on in my life. The relationship falls from maybe it used to be number one or two priority. Now it falls to four or five. And that's what gets reflected in those biochemical changes is the fact that people have made that attention shift elsewhere. Not that there's some like set in stone after two years, this automatically happens. It's more like people just start focusing elsewhere. And so my belief is that you can actually have that honeymoon period last throughout an entire relationship. It all comes down to your personal responsibility and how much you're willing to commit an effort you're willing to put into the relationship. Hmm.
3: So let me ask you this and then we'll get into the, the big question that I've had ever since we, we started talking. Uh, how does this apply to somebody who's not in a romantic relationship or an intimate relationship like a single person?
2: Yeah. So my view, and this is like the view that's reflected in Tantra and Taoist sexual study, is that sexual energy is a extremely powerful energy. Like that is this is literally your life force energy, the energy that creates new life. And if you're not creating babies with it, this then you can be channeling that energy into other projects and endeavors. So either as a couple or as a single person. So if you're single, I highly recommend that you have a self-pleasuring practice that you masturbate regularly. And there are techniques that you can use that I talk about in my courses that you can further harness that energy. And by the way, I have a bunch of free videos on my site that you can I talk about exactly how to do this, like as a single person or even as a couple, Mm -hmm. where you can learn to channel that sexual energy consciously. Because most people have sex and They just drain their sexual energy. And the whole point of these ancient tantric and Taoist practices was learning how to take that energy, recirculate it in your system, and then funnel it out into your world. And so that's powerful, orgasmic, creative energy literally gets harnessed and channeled into your day-to-day life. But there's a conscious way to do that. And so, these ancient practices were all about how to do that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, as a single person, if you have a self-pleasuring practice and you're practicing these techniques, a lot of them have to do with how you breathe and move sexual energy in your body, you can feel extremely, what I say, well-fucked. You know, I've had some <laughs> of my most I've had some of my most well-fucked periods in my life as a single person, you know, where I've committed to this practice, knowing that my sexual energy is this incredible creative energy source and cultivating it deliberately. You know, there was a period where I had come out of a freshly out of a breakup and I was committed to this huge creative project. And my routine was I would go into my room, I would self-pleasure for 30, maybe 45 minutes. I like, I like extended sessions personally, and cultivate this energy. Using Using these techniques to really channel the energy into my body, I would do a little meditation and then I would go to Starbucks and write for about 90 minutes and I feel like... I created some of my most powerful, incredible, like, magnum opus work of my life during that period. And I felt very sexually satisfied. I did not feel lonely. I did not feel discontent. I felt very happy and confident in myself. Mm -hmm. And so we wear our sexual energy. Like, I have this meme that I've created where I call it the well-fucked woman. And this applies to men as well, where you can actually see the effects of someone who's not having enough sex. It often shows up as depression, anger, frustration, sadness, uh, even financial issues are often related to sexual energy. And the contrast of someone, you know, in this case, what I was saying, like a woman who's extremely well fucked, has a lot of sexual pleasure in, say, her or his life. They they like they're charismatic, they're radiant, they're powerful, they're beautiful, they just radiate something. Like, I have people email me all the time and just say, you know, my friends are saying, you know, there's just something different about you now. Like, oh, you look so good right now. What are you doing? It's like, oh, I'm having a lot more sex. You know, like, that happens all the time. And years ago I in my apartment I had a, a gym that was in like downstairs and this German guy would come to the gym and he would say to me oh Kim it's been a lo- it's been a long time hasn't it like like as though I like knowing that I wasn't getting enough sex or I'd be like oh Kim you look really good you're getting it hey like <laughs> he would know like uncannily exactly the temperature of my sexual life and then we would be in the gym and then we would start looking at people together and be like that girl who's hunched over on the treadmill all sad we're like no she's definitely not getting any or getting anything good mm-hmm. and then i at the time i had no idea i'm like how does he see that you know and then over the years in the work that i do i can see it immediately right? That people, it's like a certain, it's really your life force energy. And if you're not tapping into it, like I said, you're operating at a deficiency and this doesn't matter whether you're single, you can be in a relationship and having sex and still not be feeling like you're well fucked because somehow the quality of the sex isn't good. Or like I said, these conscious practices that enable you to really recirculate and tap into that energy have to be utilized. And they're very simple, but you know, a lot of people just don't do them. They're like have very quick, what I call junk foods sex versus gourmet sex, right? Junk food sex is like this quick hit that gives you like a bit of a high. And then you get this blood sugar plummet, you get this low afterward, right? It's feeling of regret or remorse, mm-hmm. even where which gourmet food or gourmet sex is like this multi dimensional meal, like mind, body, soul, spirit, and these different flavors and textures. And you think about it for days afterward, like, you, oh, that meal was so good, you know, like you feel like it's actually building like nutrients and cells and new matter in your body. It's contributing positively to your existence. And to me, that's the absolute baseline for sexuality that people ought to have. You know, I often ask the question, is your sex life rejuvenating, pleasurable, powerful and transformative? And if it isn't, you're doing it wrong. Mm. And that's not a moral judgment. It's just to say that there's a way to be having sex that makes you feel incredible. And that's how it ought to make you feel every single time.
3: Mm. All right, so tons more questions, as you can imagine. <laughs> all right, so you know, I, I want to talk about this idea, and I want to talk to you about it through the context of some things I've read online and, and some things I've heard on the other podcasts around sort of uh, pornography and men and, and this idea of, of self pleasuring becoming actually something that actually ends up causing problems for men, uh, you know, in the way they show up in the world. So, one, I'm curious, you know, how we avoid all that. But also incorporate the practices you're talking about. Uh, And I'm, you know, because you've talked about this thing being this rejuvenating thing so that people can just sense it. It, it. You give it off, it sounds like. And I'm really curious about that.
2: Well, I think that in terms of porn and, and, you know, it's a really good question. I think there's a, and again, this isn't a moral thing, but there's like a right way to masturbate and a wrong way to masturbate. And if you're feeling drained afterward, like that cliche, where if a man ejaculates and then passes out, he's probably doing it in a way that's draining his energy rather than giving him energy. And when men practice the techniques that I teach, then they walk away from a sexual encounter feeling rejuvenated and energized instead of like, they need to go for a nap instead They want to go to the gym. They want to Mm -hmm. work out. They've got so much energy at their fingertips. And so porn tends to be, I would say, more of a junk food sex experience, right? Right. Where it tends to be more unconscious. It's very like there's one goal in mind just to get to the orgasm. There's not a lot of heart involved in that experience. And where a gourmet sex experience typically has more emotional connection, more openness, even if it's with yourself, Mm -hmm. right? And so instead of looking at porn, it's totally fine as a guy to masturbate, but I would suggest not using porn and just using your imagination or tuning into the sensations in your body and it's not an easy thing to break away from because it's been shown that there's a whole dopamine addiction process that goes on with porn you know there's a lot of good information on there about how to break it but I don't think that not masturbating is the answer you Mm -hmm. know I think that you can unless you you can you know at people who are more accomplished at say tuning into their sexual energy can potentially tap into it without masturbating but most people I would say, have to rev it up a little bit, literally by revving up and stimulating their genitals to tap into that energy.
3: Hmm. That's, uh, that's really interesting. I've never heard it put that way before. Hmm. I, I love this idea of junk food sex and gourmet sex. Uh, so speaking of gourmet sex, let's get into something that has been on my mind uh, ever since I heard about your work, which is this idea of one hour orgasms. I'm sure everybody is thinking, what the hell, that's actually possible?
2: Yeah, and so it it's actually just it Connects to this whole idea about tuning into your sexual energy and breathing. And I mean, look, you know, everyone, your sexual energy is basically concentrated at your genitals. And for most people, they build to orgasm, they get to orgasm, and then they just eject out all of that energy. And the orgasm might be like 30 seconds, 60 seconds, whatever it is. Like, I guess 60 is probably high, (laughs) like 15 or 30, maybe. And instead, when you learn how to breathe and disseminate that energy throughout your entire system, you have more of what we call full body orgasms and they last for much longer. So, I mean, I even have, you know, the talk about Tim Ferriss is the four hour work week. I talk about the four hour orgasm, you know, or the all night orgasm. You can literally have an orgasm that goes all night. And that's because you you learn to hover in that zone, right? So for for most people, like you say, okay, a, a non-arousal is a zero, orgasm is a 10. And so the whole idea of like tantric and dash practices is to hover in the seven to 10 zone as long as possible. Like that's where the gold is. That's where you feel the most pleasure. That's where you, I call harvest the most sexual energy to bring into your life. And so the practices that I teach are all about how to stay in that zone. And the longer you stay in that zone, you're basically either at the edge of orgasm or right in orgasm for a sustained period of time. And so you get all that bliss and pleasure this channel like you know, reverberating through your body, pulsing through your body for, you know, an hour, two hours, a day, <laughs> even, you know, like I walk away from having sex and often I'm still vibrating and humming in that same manner that I was at the peak of orgasm. And that'll last for the day or several days even. I've been shaking for days afterward at times. And so we have... This you know, that's kind of a a myth, I guess, that an orgasm is just this finite experience. You know, we can really expand that moment for hours and hours. Like people have heard this idea that, you know, Sting can make love to his wife all night for nine hours at a time or whatever. He's hovering in that orgasmic state, you know, like right at that nine to 10 or 9.5 out of 10 or 9.99 out of 10 zone. You know, where you don't necessarily go over this edge and plummet. You just kind of remain at this edge that then becomes a plateau, if that makes sense. Uh
3: And this is possible for men, too.
2: It's possible for men and women. It's especially important for men because men tend to lose a lot of energy through orgasm, right? Mm -hmm. Like that cliche of men rolling over and going to sleep is a cliche for a reason. It happens a lot. And that's because like from this more Eastern perspective, men deplete a lot of their life force energy when they ejaculate. And so the way that they can regain that, I mean, some purists would say that men ultimately don't ejaculate, but it's not just about not ejaculating. You have to learn how to recirculate that energy in your body and from what i've seen uh, working with thousands of people is that thousands of men is that if they learn these sort of breathing techniques that i talk about you can still have an orgasm you can actually separate orgasm from ejaculation eventually where you can still have a full-on amazing even way better than normal orgasm but you're not even ejaculating any fluid
3: okay so we're gonna i'm not gonna let you off the hook that easily so i'm sure everybody's thinking okay well then how the hell do we do that you talked about this idea of recirculating energy um And and separating orgasm from ejaculation. So can you give us I mean, some details around how that actually happens or give us some insight into practices that people can cultivate? Uh, And, you know, obviously, if you have resources, please feel free to mention them and we'll link them up in the show notes as well.
2: Yeah. So I have a few free video series on my site. One for it's called sexual mastery for men and one how to be a well fucked woman. And in both of those, like ones for men, obviously ones for women, both of those series, I talk about exactly how to do that practice with the breath where you're working on using the breath to prolong your orgasm for men to build stamina, have more of a full body orgasm. And it actually leads to that place of being able to separate orgasm from ejaculation. And honestly, it all comes down to breathing. And you'd be amazed if if you pay attention when you go to have sex or you masturbate next, just pay attention to how much you breathe. And I guarantee that you're probably holding your breath, breathing really shallow, or like tightening up your body. And all of those things just curtail the flow of energy in your system. And instead, there's a more deeper, fuller way to breathe, which like I talk about in those videos, that will take you over those edges, through those edges, and let you remain on those edges. And so that's it's really quite simple, but a lot of people have just Developed, I'd say bad habits mm-hmm. over the years that then lead them to sexual experiences that, you know, where they feel not so good or they feel tired or, you know, less energized or less connected, where to me, sex ought to be getting you high. That's mm-hmm. what it ought to do every single time. Sometimes it might be higher than others, but it ought to always be this thing where, you know, that cliche, oh, I'm too tired to have sex. No, you should have sex because you'll get energized. Or, oh, if you have, I can't tonight, I have a headache. No, if you have sex, you'll probably get rid of your headache. Mm -hmm. You know, sex is like the the giant panacea for all kinds of ailments. Wow. Well, practiced practiced in that way. Right. Not just, you know, junk food sex, but here what I'm describing is really the realm of gourmet sex.
3: So you know, let me ask you this and we'll start wrapping things up. Uh, You know, you've talked about it in the context of your own life. What kinds of changes have you seen in people's lives, both single and those in relationships as a byproduct of these kinds of practices?
2: All kinds of stuff. Like I, you know, one of the main things that I actually see is around finances. Like I had a couple I was working with, they've been together for about 30 years and they have a pretty good sexual connection. I would say they're self-employed, they run a business together and, but they have had these like financial ups and downs for a long time. Like sometimes when they have like really no money coming in for two or three months, and then they do pretty well, but they've always been on this edge, you know, they've never really gotten ahead in a way they're always just maintaining. And so we were started to work together. And we uncovered this deep, long standing block that had been in their relationship for probably like two and a half decades. And They, You know, it's kind of like things that you just get used to. Like initially you notice them. It's like kind of getting this box delivered to your house. Like maybe it sits in the corner. Initially you, you notice it and then it just sits there for so long that you start using it as a piece of furniture. You put your coffee cups on top of it, you know, you dust it, you clean it. It's like a lot of our blocks are like that. You know, we just kind of adapt to having them even though the adaptation isn't necessarily good. And so we managed to uncover some of these things, get rid of them, kind of heal them, work through them um, yeah. And like literally the next day they got three phone calls for job offers that basically saw them through the next six months, you know, like they, and they've been like far more stable now that we've cleared a lot of this debris that's been in their relationship. And if you, if you subscribe to the system of chakras, like in the chakra system, your sexual chakra is actually, it's sex and money, like creativity, sex and money are all in the second chakra area. And so what I've seen when I found out about that, I started to really pay attention to that connection and see that. That when people are sexually blocked, they're usually financially blocked too. And then I, I've seen it in my own life that the more sexually free and opened up I become over the years, my financial situation just escalated incredibly. And so and then I've seen that happen over and over again with people now that I've made and articulated that connection and that they've seen it as well. And I think overall, just that, you know, you become more energized. I've mentioned like becoming that person who looks a certain way, or, you know, puts out more charisma. More energy, more vitality. Um, you have this ability to um, like get more done because you've got all this more energy that's freed up. You become a more patient parent, a more loving friend, a more uh, you know amiable partner in general, right? Because you've just elevated yourself in so many ways.
3: Wow! Uh, really, really, really mind blowing stuff. Uh, You know, I mean, and this is what I I knew when, when you know, Liz mentioned to me that you would be a fabulous guest. Like, like I said, just from looking at a little bit of your work, I was like, okay, this sounds fascinating. We have to find out about this. So I want to close with one final question, and this is how we close all our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What is it in your mind that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
2: If they are the truest expression of their actual Selves, you know, like there's this idea that that's out there in the creative. we like, oh, it's all been done before. Bullshit. It hasn't all been done before because every single human being is different and unique. And if you really do the work to, as I say, like uncover those blocks or that conditioning to find like the most true, real expression of who you are, you will always be an original. You will always be unmistakable. Right. And so the journey is to getting to that place in yourself where you express yourself fearlessly. You don't censor. You really are loyal to the the deep truth of who you are. And that to me makes a person unmistakable.
3: Awesome. I'm not even going to touch it. Uh, (laughs) I have to say, like, this has been one of my favorite conversations I've had on the show in a long time. And uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and and share your story and your insights and, and all this stuff with our listeners.
2: My pleasure. Thank you. There have been some great questions and I've really enjoyed it myself.
3: Yeah. And for those of you guys listening, uh, we'll link up everything that Kim has mentioned in the show notes and we'll wrap with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring,